Hey Conjurers, I'm Sham. And I'm Steph. There's some cases where one might say you're putting yourself in harm's way. Whether that means saying yes to a stranger, going on a date with someone you never met, or leaving your doors unlocked. In today's case, I want to tell you about 10 women who did nothing other than be polite, and that led to them being attacked in their own homes. The first victim was 32-year-old Sharon Nance, who was a loving mother of one son. She grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina, and was well-known by her peers. She relied on sex work to pay the bills, but that in no way defined her as a friend, mother, or person. On May 27th of 1992, Sharon was found beaten to death on the side of Rosewell's Ferry Road. She was spotted by a passerby who called the police. Sharon's work put her in the category of a high-risk lifestyle, but no one deserves such an obviously brutal death. The reason for her murder wouldn't be found out until much later when it was learned that she was working, and when she demanded payment for her services, she was beaten to death. She had been murdered days earlier before her body was mercilessly discarded. I can already see where this is going. So often, women like Sharon are ignored and their cases barely get investigated because people don't think of them as priorities. This is all we know about Sharon, isn't it? All the victims at least had a few paragraphs on them besides her, everywhere I looked. I had to rely on her obituary for everything outside of her being a prostitute. Sex work doesn't define who a person is. It's just a job. She deserves so much better than that. Hopefully not all the victims were so blatantly ignored by investigators and media. Well, next we have Caroline Love. She was 21 years old when she first went missing on June 15th of 1992. On that day, she was working her shift at the Bojangles fast food restaurant chain. As her shift was coming to an end, she asked her manager if she could buy some quarters from the cash register to use at the laundromat. He agreed, and after exchanging her dollars for coins, she clocked out and began her walk home. She ran into her cousin Robert on the walk who offered her a ride home, which she accepted. He watched her enter her house, and after that, she just vanished. Her sister Kathy, her roommate Sadie, and Sadie's boyfriend Henry filed a missing persons report after three days of not seeing or hearing from her. Was her roommate or the roommate's boyfriend home when she got there? How did someone disappear after walking into their own house? I'm assuming they weren't home yet, but I couldn't find more information. Three days is a long time to report someone missing, but I didn't read anything in regards to a search happening or anything. Okay, this feels like another one that was barely taken seriously at all. Because it wasn't. (laughs) And eight months later, on February 19th of 1993, 21-year-old Shauna Hawk was found strangled. Shauna attended Central Piedmont Community College, where she was studying to be a paralegal. She lived with her mother, Dee Sumter, and worked at the Sharon Amity Road Taco Bell. To her loved ones, Shauna was called the Purple Princess due to that being her favorite color and her wearing it all the time. That day, Shauna's mother arrived home to cook dinner as usual and noticed that Shauna's purse and coat were in the house, but her car was nowhere to be found. This was unsettling because Shauna never went anywhere without her purse. The coat was alarming because the weather was currently in the 20s, so she would be freezing without it. The first place Dee assumed she could be was at her boyfriend Daryl's, so she reached out to him, but he said that he hadn't seen her all day and came over to help look for her. As time went on, they decided to file a missing persons report. 
Daryl began searching the house for clues, and once he made it to the downstairs bathroom, he noticed the shower curtains were placed completely outside the tub. When he pulled them back, there was Shauna's 140-pound petite body submerged underwater and curled up. This is terrifying. These women are in their own homes where they feel safe, and somehow someone is still getting to them and killing them without a trace? Her mother's instinct, though, was spot on. She was like, I don't care if her car isn't there. Something isn't right. I know my daughter. Absolutely. Trust those instincts. Four months later, on June 23rd of 1993, 24-year-old Audrey Spain was found strangled in her own home just like Shauna. Audrey had a shift that day at the local Taco Bell in Charlotte, and when she didn't show up, her manager Mark became concerned. Employees miss shift all the time, but it wasn't like Audrey, especially without calling. That night, Mark decided to drive by her apartment to check on her. The first thing he noticed was that her car was parked outside. Assuming she was home, he called her phone and left her a voicemail. He figured he might see her later that night since she was picking up a shift for another person. But when she no-showed again, he felt like something had to be wrong and called 911 to do a welfare check. When officers got to the apartment, they knocked on the door, but Audrey never answered, so they left. Two days later, on June 25th, maintenance workers were scheduled to go into Audrey's apartment. Since she didn't answer the door, they decided to enter through the back sliding door. And when they entered her bedroom, Audrey was lying on her bed with a t-shirt and bra around her neck, t-shirt stuffed in her mouth, clear abrasions on her knee, face, and back, and it also appeared that she was sexually assaulted. That is not a welfare check. If all they were going to do was knock on the door and then leave, what is the point? Her manager could have done that himself. The point of a welfare check is to make sure that person is okay. She could have been in there clinging to dear life. As police, you have the authority to do more. Go get the management to open the fucking door. (laughs) Seriously, police are willing to break down doors for literally any other reason, but not when they might actually save a life. Two months later, on August 10th of 1993, 21-year-old Valencia Jumper was found dead in her burnt-down apartment, and at that time, it was ruled an accidental death. Valencia was studying political science and was in her final year at Johnson C. Smith College. She worked near Bojangles, where Caroline had worked, at the Food Lion on Central Avenue, and took a second job at Hetch's South Park Mall. That day, she had made plans to meet up with her friend Zach at her place, and when he arrived a little after midnight, he was met with smoke that seemed to be coming from her apartment, so he called 911. Once the firefighters arrived on the scene, they noticed a burner left on the stove with a pot of beans in it. When they made their way to the bedroom, they discovered Valencia's charred body. Are they suggesting she was sleeping and left the stove on and didn't wake up to a smoke alarm or anything? This is the 90s. Smoke detectors were mandatory by then. I don't buy it. Also, her body and bedroom were burnt, but it obviously wasn't the pot of beans that was way off in the kitchen that started it. Smoke doesn't make your body char up. Exactly. This is lazy investigating. Why bother trying to figure out what really happened when the scene clearly doesn't add up? Lazy investigating, indeed. One month later, on September 15th of 1993, Michelle Stinson would be found strangled to death in her apartment. At the time, Michelle was a 20-year-old living in Charlotte with her two young sons. She worked at the local Taco Bell full-time and was also attending college classes. That day, Michelle's friend James stopped by to see her, but when no one answered the door, he was concerned because there was noise coming from inside. James decided to enter the apartment, and that's when he saw the noise was Michelle's sons knocking on the window. 
When he went into the kitchen, there was Michelle's body lying on the floor in a pool of blood. He picked up the phone to call 911, but the cord had been cut. He picked up the boys and ran to the neighbors with them and used their phone to call 911. Michelle's injuries included four stab wounds on the left side of her back, which fatally punctured her heart and lungs. Around her neck were tightly placed bands and contusions were apparent as well. Detectives would rule her cause of death to be stab wounds and strangulation. Those poor babies saw everything. That just breaks my heart. Also, how have police not connected these cases yet? They all seem to work at Taco Bell or that nearby Bojangles. And they also live in the same part of town. For the killer to cut the phone cord meant that she had tried to call for help. Or they wanted to give themselves enough time to leave, so they cut it so the kids couldn't pick up the phone. They might not be old enough to dial yet, but if someone had called them, they could answer. Seems obvious to me, but police still don't think these cases are connected at this point. Okay, go ahead and continue. (laughs) You know there's more. (laughs) Five months later, on February 20th of 1994, Vanessa Mack would be the next victim found strangled to death in her own home. Vanessa was a mother of two girls ages seven and four months old. At the time, she was working at Carolina's Medical Center. Her mother-in-law, Barbara Rippey, whom she was extremely close to, worked at the local Taco Bell in town. On Sundays, it was Barbara's routine to pick up her four-month-old granddaughter. At 6 a.m., Barbara parked and went into the apartment, and the first thing she noticed was the four-month-old alone on the couch, which was extremely unusual. She started to look for Vanessa, and when she made her way to the bedroom, she noticed her feet hanging off the bed. Barbara immediately knew something was very wrong. Her feet were the only part of her that was visible, and they appeared to be gray and cold. She grabbed the baby, called 911, and waited outside for them to arrive. When the investigators went into her bedroom, they noticed blood coming from her nose, ears, and back of her head. A towel and long sleeve shirt was wrapped around her neck, and her purse and the contents that were in it were spread out around her bed. She was declared dead by strangulation. Ugh, I really hate when kids are involved. Those girls will probably never recover from what was done to their mom. I'm so glad the baby's okay, but who knows how long she was left there. I don't think the seven-year-old was home, though. I feel like if she was, the killer would have taken her out, too. Yeah, you're probably right. I'm glad for that. We have more, don't we? Less than a month later, on March 9th of 1994, assistant manager at the local Bojangles, 24-year-old Betty Bauckham, who went by Susie, was found dead in her apartment. Susie was new to Charlotte, only living there for less than a year with her three-year-old adopted daughter. That day, she didn't show up to her scheduled shift, and just like Audrey's manager, Susie's manager became concerned. He not only called her apartment, but he called her other co-workers and her mother, but they all said the same thing. I haven't heard from her. The following day, Susie didn't show up again, so he made his round of calls again before he and her co-worker drove to her apartment. When they arrived, they knocked on the door and peeked through her windows, and aside from her not answering the door, everything seemed to look normal and nothing out of place. Despite what they found or didn't find, they still hadn't heard back from Susie. Susie's mother and her manager decided it was time to contact the police and file a missing persons report. One hour later, the police reached out to Susie's manager and told him that they were dispatched to her apartment in regards to a woman who wasn't breathing. Susie was found on her bed by maintenance with a towel and small sheet wrapped around her neck in addition to abrasions from the abdomen up. Some items of hers were missing, including the car. I love coworkers that really care and do everything they can to check on someone who doesn't show up. 
Not every workplace has that kind of relationship. I mean, most just prepare to write you up or fire you. (laughs) I still don't understand how there's still no suspect at this point. The killer is attacking people every month by this point. Oh, girl. One day later, on March 10th, 18-year-old Brandy Henderson headed out to a doctor's appointment while her boyfriend, Bernice, who lived with her, stayed home to watch her 10-month-old son. While watching his son, Bernice's friend Henry Wallace stopped by to tell him that he was leaving town. Later that day, after Brandy returned home, she took over watching their son so Bernice could head out to work at 5 p.m. Brandy was on the phone with her cousin, George Burrell, when someone knocked on her door. She let the person in and said, lock the door behind you, before telling her cousin she had to go. George wasn't worried at the time because it seemed like Brandy knew and trusted that person. When Bernice returned home a little after midnight, the door was unlocked, the living room was a mess with items scattered all over the floor, and the only thing he noticed missing was the stereo. The first thing that came to his mind was, I need to find my son. He started searching the rooms of the apartment, and when he turned on the light, he saw his son gasping for air. A pair of shorts had been tied around his neck, and white foam was coming out of his mouth. Bernice quickly removed the shorts and started to help his son breathe. That's when he noticed Brandy, lying face down on the bed. Bernice turned her over to check if she was still breathing, but her face was blue and towels were tied around her neck. He removed the towels before calling 911. He started to perform CPR on her until help arrived, but Brandy was dead upon arrival, and though his son was in critical condition, he was sent to the hospital and made a full recovery. Oh no, they went after the baby this time too. I can't handle it. I'm so happy the dad got there just in time, but that little boy still lost his mom. This person is out here trying to kill babies now. He must be stopped. Like, what was the point of that? He can't even identify you. Can we also talk about the fact that this one took place one day after Susie was murdered? This guy is ramping up quick. The killers seem to be growing very confident because one day later on March 12th, Deborah Slaughter's mother, Lovey, went by her daughter's apartment and when she knocked, she wasn't alarmed that she didn't answer. After all, she knew Deborah was supposed to be at work. She was, however, alarmed when she went to put the key in that Deborah gave her into the door and it was already unlocked. As soon as she entered the apartment, there was Deborah's lifeless body lying face up on the ground and her purse and items from her purse thrown out everywhere. She had a white balled-up sock stuffed into her mouth and two towels tightly tied around her neck. As if that wasn't bad enough, she had been stabbed 38 times in the abdomen and chest. Ultimately, her cause of death was both stab wounds and strangulation. Jesus, it just keeps getting worse. 38 times? Like, he was becoming darker and darker with every woman at this point. Women are being murdered in the exact same way on a daily basis. Police had to pay attention now, right? On March 13th of 1994, Henry Wallace was arrested. For 12 hours, he confessed to the murders of 10 women across Charlotte. Henry described in great detail the women's appearances, as well as how he befriended the women before he raped, robbed, and killed them. He then confessed to an 11th murder he committed before moving to Charlotte. 18-year-old Tashada Betha, she was found dead in a pond in Barnwell, South Carolina on April 1st of 1990. Peers that knew her and Henry said he had a crush on her and they had dated off and on numerous times. In 1990, Henry was questioned about the murder and sexual assault of Tashonda, but was never charged for the crime. He scouted out Upper South Carolina and Lower North Carolina areas for victims after that. 
He was stationed in Port Orchard, Washington in 1988 when he got out of the Navy and not long after was arrested for burglary there, but no murders from the area were ever linked to him. Henry went after women he considered beautiful, black, and smaller than him. Most of his victims knew him or at least shared conversation with him in passing at his local Taco Bell job. Whoa, wait, how did we get here? We went nearly two years and 10 murdered women with no leads or movement on any of these cases to suddenly having a suspect in custody confessing to all of the murders. How did police find him? I have so many questions. Girl, I don't even know. There was no buildup and no information in regards to potential suspects in this case the entire time, but they had to know something. They were just like, oh, I guess we should probably get off our asses and do something. He claimed to be friends with all of these women. How did police not see his connection to the victims for so long? Steph will tell us more about this completely overlooked killer after this short break. Henry Lewis Wallace was born in Barnwell, South Carolina. He was raised by a single mother after his father walked out while his mother was pregnant with him. His mother worked as a textile worker and was said to be a harsh disciplinarian, always yelling and criticizing him over every mistake he made. As a teenager, he attended Barnwell High School, where he was a cheerleader and was also elected to student council. He graduated in 1983 and worked as a DJ for a local radio station while taking classes off and on at multiple colleges. In 1985, he decided to join the Navy. He married his high school sweetheart, Moretta Brabham, two years later and was honorably discharged in 1988. He seemed to have a good head on his shoulders despite his rough childhood. However, it wasn't as good as it seemed. During his time in the Navy, he began a drug addiction, which included mainly crack cocaine. He even began to steal for it, which led to several warrants for his arrest in Washington State around Seattle. He was eventually arrested for breaking into a hardware store in January of 1988. He was sentenced to two years of supervised probation, where he failed time and time again to show up to his mandatory meetings. Wow, he could have been stopped a long time ago. These days, they'll lock you up for two years for violating your parole. (laughs) What's the point of mandatory parole meetings if there's no consequences for skipping them? Exactly. And his childhood didn't seem like it was bad enough to create a killer. Yeah, it sounds like his mom wasn't very nice, but that isn't a reason to start killing people. After he was arrested for the murders, Henry's trial kept getting delayed over the next two years due to a lack of DNA evidence from the victims. Even though Henry had confessed to the murders of all of these women and even shared some insights on a few. When he confessed to Deborah's murder, he added that he used her own knife and wiped it down before leaving it with the contents of her purse. Investigators weren't entirely without evidence against him either. For Susie, he confessed and left a palm print on her car. For Vanessa, he confessed, and investigators had a picture from a surveillance camera of him trying to use her debit card at a nearby ATM. When he confessed to Valencia's murder, he shared that he strangled her and then poured rum on her body, bed, and floor. He started the beans on the stove and then struck a match in Valencia's room. So they clearly had connected him to all these different women, but they still waited to arrest him? They were waiting on the words to come out of his mouth that he killed them. It makes no sense. They had evidence pointing right at him and did nothing. Lives could have been saved. He deserves whatever is coming to him for hurting those women and those children. Prosecution was pushing for the death penalty. 
The defense attorneys argued that he suffered from mental illness and the murder should not be first-degree murder because there was no premeditation. The other side argued that he befriended these women and spent time gaining their trust with the intent to eventually kill them. During the trial, Faye Sultan, a psychologist, testified that Henry was a victim of mental and physical abuse his entire childhood at the hands of his mother. Due to him also being a victim, his defense team was pushing for life without parole instead of the death penalty. On January 7, 1997, Henry was found guilty of nine murders. On January 29th, he was sentenced to nine death sentences. After he was sentenced, the judge allowed him to make a statement to the victim's families. He said, and I quote, None of these women, none of your daughters, mothers, sisters, or family members in any way deserved what they got. They did nothing to me that warranted their death. I think their families know their loved ones didn't deserve to die by your hands. I also want to point out that he did more than kill these women. This isn't talked about much in these cases, but investigators and family members drop a lot of hints in interviews that these women were also sexually assaulted. Yeah, can we not refer to this horrible monster as a victim, please? His statement was trash, but at least he didn't try to claim innocence or something. This city deserves to know more details about what went down during that investigation. Well, on March 14th, 1994... The first press conference held by the Charlotte-Mecklenburg Police Department about these cases was held. It was there, Deputy Chief Larry Snyder said, and I quote, The investigators worked tremendously hard on all 10 cases. The only thing I can say is that we are sorry he wasn't identified earlier. Had we done that, we maybe could have saved the life of some of these women, end quote. Three days later, on March 17th, the second police conference was held. But this time, the assistant city manager, Don Steger, spoke to the crowd and said, quote, The excellent work of our department brought this case to a closure within 48 hours of identifying the prime suspect, end quote. They went on to talk about how strangulation cases happen all the time in Charlotte, and this is why these cases didn't raise suspicion. Even with three victims back-to-back, the investigators deemed it to be not that unique. According to an interview by WBTV, Dr. Cyril Wetch, a forensic pathologist, believes that there was professional malpractice in all of these cases. The sister of Deborah told WBTV, and I quote, He basically killed all these women the exact same way, and no one was able to pick up on that. It was very scary. I can't help but think that had they moved a little bit faster, there's a small possibility that my sister Deborah would not be dead, end quote. Shauna's mother, Dee, led the charge against Charlotte homicide on the fact that the department did not do their job. She couldn't understand how they didn't see a connection with all of these strangulations. Three victims back-to-back dying the exact same way, and it isn't unique? And no reason to be connected? Excuse me? Right? The first statement the deputy chief made was more honest, but they silenced him because the department didn't want the liability that comes with the shitty excuse for an investigation they did in each and every one of these cases. How the hell are we podcasters and we're capable of putting two and two together? Give us your damn jobs already. I can use something to do on the weekends. (laughs) In Newark, New Jersey, homicide consultant who worked with the Newark police for over 23 years, Vernon Gerberth, told WBTV, Charlotte investigators missed an obvious serial murder pattern and it should have been recognized by them, end quote. 
As far as Sharon, she was found beaten to death and Caroline wasn't discovered until Henry confessed murdering her. However, many homicide experts believe the investigators should have been able to link Shauna, Audrey, Michelle, and Vanessa's death to the same killer. When Shauna was attacked, every piece of evidence was removed by the killer. There was nothing out of place, no forced entry, and no fingerprints. This clean crime scene should have been alarming to the investigators in this case. Her death was not normal, and it's obvious she knew whoever she let into her home that day. Especially once Audrey was found a few weeks later under the exact same circumstances, living in the same town as Shauna. There's no reason they should not have put two and two together. A homicide detective that remained anonymous during his interview with WBTV said, After two strangulations, I certainly would have linked this to the one person with just the strangulation aspect. No question about it. End quote. Then, when Michelle was found under the same circumstances as Audrey and Shauna, at that point they had a full-blown serial killer on the loose with a pattern he was comfortable with. The murders continued only five months later with Vanessa. Four single black women found in their own homes without any forced entry should have at the very least pointed to a stalker from the local area, and this should have had investigators quivering. Several clues the Charlotte investigators missed were obvious red flags for outside professionals. Dr. Michael Sullivan conducted all the autopsies for every victim from this case, and investigators should have been working closely with him. A few autopsies that stood out was Valencia's, the victim who supposedly died in an accidental fire, but Dr. Sullivan's results showed strangulation. Deputy Chief Jack Boger with the Charlotte-Mecklenburg Police Department would later go on to say, The autopsy was very important, but we depend on the medical examiner to handle that. End quote. Dr. Sullivan signed all the reports, ruling that Shauna and Audrey were indeed strangled, and there were obvious signs Michelle also died of strangulation. Sadly, the police department refused to see any similarities in their cases. Sergeant Rick Sanders said, There was no distinct characteristics that said these cases were related. End quote. Some of the investigators in charge of the case didn't even bother to read the autopsy reports and solely base their conclusions off the opinions of their colleagues. Who doesn't read the autopsy report? These women are already dead. Besides finding the killer, your only other job is to determine how they died and look for evidence. What the actual fuck? <laughs> this blows my mind. How do you expect to solve a murder if you refuse to look at any of the evidence? Especially Valencia. They would have known that she was murdered before the fire if they had bothered to look. Exactly. So what would they have read, though, if they had read the autopsy report? <laughs> in Shauna's case, she was strangled by hands being tightly squeezed around her neck. In Audrey, Michelle, and Vanessa's case, they were strangled by a ligature, which is a piece of material of some kind used to tie or bind something tightly. This could include a rope, zip tie, or piece of clothing. To me, more specific, in Audrey's autopsy, it said there is a ligature fashioned out of what appeared to be a previously torn t-shirt intertwined with a black brassiere, wrapping tightly around her neck, visibly compressing and pinching the skin with a bra knotted in a double knot. For Michelle, it was just stated as ligature strangulation. Vanessa stated there was a long white, long sleeve pullover type shirt fashioned as a ligature around her neck. That sounds pretty straightforward to me. 
And it would to them, too, if they had read it. It makes my blood boil. What did the investigators have to say for themselves? Now, retired homicide detective Gary McFadden shared with Fox News, quote, the Charlotte Police Department faced severe backlash by the community for reportedly being slow to realize the victims, lower income black women, were being targeted. He told them that at the time, we were faced with the crack epidemic. A lot of people were getting robbed. A lot of homes were getting broken into. Purse snatching, carjacking, shootings, stabbings, missing persons. Because they were on drugs, there was a lot of crime, a lot of chaos. People didn't want to speak up because there was a lot of deaths and people wanted answers. And everybody was scared to talk because it was drug-related or if you said anything, somebody would shoot you. We also had two officers who died during that time. And so with all this stuff that was going on, it was very chaotic. We were just trying to hold on. We didn't have relationships with the community. So it was a very difficult time. Very difficult. End quote. Excuses, excuses. Maybe you had a bad relationship with the community because they didn't trust you to actually serve and protect them. I say this all the time, but it's literally your job description. I want to know if all these difficulties made it impossible to pay attention to all the murders or just the murders of poor black women. Did the middle or upper class white murders get just as little attention? We know that they didn't. So where's Henry now? Well, as for Henry, while in prison, Henry married a former prison nurse, Rebecca Torres, on June 5th of 1998. They decided to have a ceremony right next to the execution chamber where he was supposed to be executed. To this day, no execution date has been set for Henry. Lovely. This case is extremely unnerving. So many lives could have been saved had the police not let race and economic status prevent them from doing their jobs. This is the world we still live in, unfortunately. And we may not be able to depend on the justice system to protect us all, but we can try and do our part to look out for our own in our own communities. Eleven lives were taken. These were scholars, mothers, siblings, and women who had their entire life ahead of them, but just knowing one evil individual sealed their fates. Black and Missing in America, also known as Banffy, was founded in 2008. It's a nonprofit organization whose mission is to bring awareness to missing persons of color, provide vital resources and tools to missing persons' families and friends, and to educate the minority community on personal safety. For more information on what Banffy provides and any tips you would like to provide involving missing persons of color, visit www.blackandmissinginc.com or call 1-877-97-BAMFI. Again, that's 1-877-972-2634. To view images, information, and sources from this case, visit our website at crimeandcontra.com. Research and writing for this episode is done by Stefan Sham. Editing of this episode by Denver Fortner Productions with music by Jordan Alina. Be sure to check out our Instagram at Crime and Conjure Podcast for our question of the week, and you can also find us on TikTok. Sham, what's our Conjure tip of the week? Today, I want to talk about the Celtic Shield Knot. It's a symbol of protection commonly used in jewelry, decor, and as a motif in Celtic design. It's a stylistic weave and has no beginning or end, and the unbroken design is believed to bear the power to ward off negative energy. So keep one on you or place a few around your house for protection. We have plenty of them over here in addition to our evil eyes. Oh, we have some too. It's important to protect our homes as well as our bodies. We'll be back next week with another episode. Until Until next time, stay vigilant, conjurers. conjurers.